Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... This week on Plenary Session, I have a very short episode for you because many of us are going to be celebrate. Just kidding, just kidding. We're not doing anything foolish here. I've got Z-Dog MD or Zubindamania, and then I've got a discussion of Javelin 100 with Kareen Tawaji. It's a short week. It's a short episode. Hope you enjoy. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. I'm back in Plenary Session in Z-Dog Studios. I'm joined by Zubin Damania. Zubin, it's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure to loan you my capital investment of high-grade audio gear. <laughs> uh, so it's great to be here. I, I'd say your your studio is a little bit nicer than my studio. It's a bit more rundown. Um, and, but we use the same microphone, so you, I'm at your level there. You convinced me to get this microphone. I had a really crappy lower-end microphone, and so thank you. I, I learned a lot listening to your podcast, especially about the tech to make podcasts and how to make it sound really good. <laughs> I do like good sound. Well, listen, our time is very short because we ran it out on something fun we were having a minute ago. Um, but I had a lot of questions for you, and I really appreciate you doing this. Um, listeners of my podcast, I don't know if you know, uh, Zubin Damani is Z-Dog MD. Um, he's a doctor, a hospitalist, a, um, a Stanford graduate, a UCSF graduate before that, um, who has created a brand, Z-Dog MD, which does a lot of wonderful things. One, thoughtful podcast with lots of guests on so many diverse issues in healthcare. Two, music videos, humorous, funny music videos. I think most people may know you because they've probably seen your music video, they just didn't know it was you behind, uh, behind the scenes. Um, so I think people should check that out. I guess, I guess I've been so curious about, about your path in medicine. Um, and on prior episodes, we talked a little bit, and I know you're from, you're from California, from rural California, and then you, you, you did your training here. Um, were you always a musical guy? When did you get into music? How how do you pl- what instruments do you play? I mean, what's your musical background? It, it, it's really funny because I you know grew up in Clovis, California. It's a little conservative farming town, and it's like one of the most conservative places in California. And so I was the big rebel. I was like the liberal kid, and like and uh, but then then I went to UC Berkeley, and by the way, I was like the most conservative kid there. <laughs> it, was like, it was crazy. But uh, the, the, I, when I was young, you know, I was a chubby little kid because my mom, you know, she's she's Parsi, which is a, a it's a it, like an Iranian sub minority in India, and and the way she showed love was you ate a lot of food. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I was a chubby little kid, a little gut running around, funny last name, weird New Jersey accent because I was born in New Jersey, moved That's to the city. So to keep myself safe from pretty much everybody, I would use humor and kind of be a, uh, a performer uh, to try to disarm people. And so that, that was an early thing for me. And, and I got into music early on by listening to just a ton of 80s music when I was growing up in the 80s. And so 
I loved pop music and I loved trying to sing it and I was a terrible singer and no formal training, but I would tell people even in elementary school, like I'm gonna be a famous pop star when I grow up, like that's my thing. And you would see, I actually have this like uh, fourth grade yearbook uh-huh. yeah, from Dry Creek Elementary in Clovis, California. And it, people were saying, good luck with your music career and stuff like that. I mean, this was fourth grade. And so, but it was insane, right? So yeah. so then, then you know, I, I went to, I, I, in, in high school trying to, find my thing because I didn't do sports and all that. I was like, well, I'll pick up guitar. I'll try to learn how to do this instrument. You know, I played clarinet in the marching band, which was like chick poison. Like, <laughs> like why would you do it's that? Like clarinet. It was the yeah. worst. And the uh-huh. reason it was clarinet, parents are from India. Uh-huh. What's the cheapest instrument to rent? <laughs> and it was a clarinet. Of course. I was yeah. like, I want to play the sax dad because yeah, yeah, it's the yeah, 80s. Yeah. No, no, I had the clarinet. So I learned a little music, um, you know, how to read music and stuff doing clarinet. But then I played guitar, got pretty good at guitar because I would practice t- eight, 10 hours a day oh, because really? I was that guy, I right? See, yeah. The gunner. And, um, Got into UC Berkeley, did a minor in music. And so that, this, was, this was before you went to college, you were already sort of playing guitar as a yeah. teenager. Okay. And again, I had this delusional idea that I was gonna be some famous rock star. Yeah. And it's pure delusion, because my level of talent is low, but my level of diligence at the time was high. So I could fool myself into thinking, you know, nowadays like any kid is a better guitarist than I would ever be. And so I, I went to UC Berkeley and I did a minor in music, but I decided I wanted to be a doctor for a bunch of reasons, a long path, but, so I hedged by doing music and learned ethnomusicology. So it was like Javanese gamelan and the music of the oh. Caribbean, understanding how culture influenced music. And that then formed this um, interesting background where I had a little bit of musical training, I never really sung, I understood like the cultural and ethnomusicology aspects and some music theory. And, and that's kind of what formed the background of music. So then when I went through all the medical training, I let all that fall away because you know, you're so of busy. Course. And then roundabout middle burnout period at Stanford as a hospitalist, I was like, you know, I'm gonna make some parody music videos just because I want to, this is who I am. And so I had to relearn and I had to take like voice lessons eventually and all this other stuff just to be able to do some of these parodies. How many years had you been practicing when you started to make the parody videos? So I, it would have been about 2010 and I'd probably been a practicing doc for at least eight years. Eight years yeah. in the hospitals at Stanford, and yeah. and um, you, you you refer to it, you you say burnout, and and a lot of people who do hospitalist medicine confide in me that that is a a common feature. Um, in your case, what how did it manifest, and and what were the sort of I think what do you attribute as the drivers for it? Yeah, so you know the first five years of my career at Stanford, it was really what I call health 3.0, really. It was it was there. It, it, it was, I was part of a multi-specialty group called Palo Alto Medical Foundation. You know, they were bought out by Sutter, and but Sutter hadn't influenced Not yet, the yeah. practice yet. Mm-hmm. So it was still a partnership where we, it was a group of physicians who got together to try to do the right things for patients and generated revenue by doing that. And in, it was a fee-for-service world. So they hired us as hospitalists to keep our patients safe at Stanford and to liaise really, to, to, to form that liaison with the primary care physician in a seamless way. So we were hospitalists, we were academic uh, faculty at Stanford, we had house staff, but we were also community physicians. So it was this perfect blend of mentorship, teaching, having house staff, having a team, and being part of something bigger than you, which was this group that cared about doing the right things for patients. So we were accountable to our patients. We were accountable to ourselves. We were salaried, so we didn't worry about I see. throughput. Sure, We had a low census so that maybe we had 10 patients, sure. which is unheard of for a hospital. Amazing. So we could spend 
you know, half an hour, an hour with each patient sitting there and holding the hand. And, and we had a team to help us, the social workers, the case managers, everyone at Stanford were great, and the house staff. So it was beautiful because then they made us do two half days of uh, outpatient clinic. And that kept us connected. We hate clinic, we're hospitals. But it kept us connected to who it was we were teamed with. So you were there with the family practice docs. I'm an internist. I learned some family medicine. And I learned what happens to my patients when they get discharged. And so it was beautiful. I would write in this diary, I have the best job in the world. I get paid to do the right thing for patients. I have these wonderful teammates. And to watch that ripped away, slowly but surely, like a thousand paper cuts, as... Census grew, we became a corporation. Sutter influenced more and more and more into throughput. The EHR goes live and becomes more of a overwhelming weight. Mm-hmm. The house staff get pulled away because of work hour restrictions and changing sensibilities around shift work and you know uh, things like that. Um, increasingly we're subspecialized and separated off from the rest of the clinic so that you don't know these people anymore as much. And it became then what everybody says, which is I'm a cog in a machine that's broken. There's a moral injury where you have to make money for the machine, but you're trying to do the right thing for your patient. Sure. And at that point, that's when I was like, I told my wife, I'm like, I can't last another 10 years. You know, this is not gonna work. I don't know what to do. I I really don't. And uh, spiraled into depression and all of that. Wow, and so <laughs> and so your your lifeline was was going back to your roots to music, um, and 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 starting this and 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 what were the first kind of videos you put out there? When did you get the Z Dog moniker, <laughs> and uh, and when did it start to take off? Well, so people used to call me Z Dog in like the '90s because I was like a big Snoop Dogg fan. Oh, of course. And they're like, "Hey, what's up, Z Dog?" Uh-huh. And I'm like, two G's, right? Not this A W G garbage, right?" <laughs> and uh, so I would, I, I, what had happened? I mean, it's a long story, but to shorten it, it was basically this: that I had this existential middle age crisis at age 35, where I was like, "I've had my, I had a kid. My second kid was coming." I was like who am I as a person? Like, this is not, this this job is not who I am. So who am I? Well, I'm a teacher. I've always taught MCAT. I've always loved to teach. I did this graduation speech at UCSF that I put on YouTube as a joke and it went viral. Mm-hmm. And I was like, maybe, maybe that's who I am as a communicator. I like music. I should do music. Maybe I should just, YouTube's a thing. I'll just start putting stuff out there. And I'll be honest, like, you know, I've told this story a little bit. I knew like in my heart, I'm like, this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it's gonna manifest, there's no way, but I just know I have to do this. And so I did it while being a full-time hospitalist and that experience then informed the kind of stuff I did. Like I did a song called Hard Doc's Life, which was about being a hospitalist. Mm-hmm. It was the hospitalist anthem, you know? Standing on the unit, rounding. <laughs> you know, you know, this chart's so thick, I forget what all the lyrics that were, but it was all that experience. And, yeah. and then I found that it got traction with people that were suffering like I was. And sure. so, uh, the next thing you know, one thing leads to another. And did you start by posting them on YouTube? Yeah, YouTube was the thing. There yeah. wasn't Facebook. I was like, this is for old people. I'm it is. Facebook. It <laughs> still is. And um, But ultimately, I found Facebook to be the platform that's most socially lubricated to share sure. native video. But YouTube was the, where it started. And you know, you have the graduation speech, then you had like these music videos that did really well. And I was like, who am I teaching here? Am I teaching patients? And then I realized, no, it's not really that. It's my fellow healthcare professionals. Sure. And not just doctors. Like, you didn't, who's really undervalued here? Nurses, respiratory therapists, dietitians, like everybody else in the spectrum. And maybe it's um, not only teaching and education, but also sort of spiritual catharsis kind of thing, relief 
I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, I know a lot of people in my life, um, and I've watched some of your videos and I find them, I, they put a smile on your face, you know? And and it, it's sort of like, not many people often articulate those little things about our day that kind of, you know, rub us the wrong way or, or we like, you know? Um, and then when you watch a music video where you've kind of, you've, you, you've kind of distillated that and you're like, oh, he's got it, he's nailed it. Like that's what it's like to do it. Um, and, and it's a bit of a relief for people who feel the sort of stress. That was the sort of flow state I would get into. Yeah. It was it was almost a spiritual thing. Like here is all my suffering. I'm gonna communalize it because I know you're suffering too. So this idea of communalization of pain, and I'm gonna take that pain in these little thousand paper cuts. Like oh, you know, the, the patient treated us like this, or the administrator treated whatever it is. Yeah. I have to click this box. I screwed this up. Readmission was a good example. A song that I did about bounce backs. Because yes. for a hospitalist, that's the worst. Yes. When someone bounces back, it's like, this is, I failed as a human. And what music did you use for that? R. Kelly Ignition? It was R. Kelly Ignition. Yeah. And, and it's just some, one of my friends had been like, oh man, I love this song. I forgot about this song. You know, it's the, dude, my remix to Admission. And I was like, oh, that's like readmission, readmission. That's all I heard. Uh -huh, and you uh -huh, write uh -huh. the lyrics and then you're like, oh, I don't know if anyone's gonna watch this. And it goes super viral. And I you see. realize it's because everyone's like, that's it. That's what it is. And, and I realized that I'm like, there's something to that. We don't, allow each other to express our communal suffering in a way that allows catharsis. So maybe if I do nothing but that, that's a thing. And, mm -hmm. and so that was a big focus, especially early on uh, of what we were doing. People like Weird Al Yankovic, do you think of him in any way, or you're just your guy's the gold standard? He's I mean, the gold standard. Yeah, of he this is just a genius. And and the thing is, what what Al does, and we've never connected directly, uh, and I would love to, but he he just is so brilliant at taking um, an idea and making it so funny and perfect and fitting that song, and then performing with a musicality that brings that does it justice. Yeah. You see a ton of parodies and you know, med students do and stuff, and the musicality is terrible, and you're like, well, it's distracting, right? He brought this A game. Yeah. So I would always look at that and go, well, what if we had a message associated with yeah, that? So yeah. over time, we really focused, because that's the other thing is, for example, let's say respiratory therapists, yeah. undervalued yeah. to the extreme. Of course. I would get tons of messages. Man, you've done videos for these guys and these guys and nurses and these guys, how about us? I'm like, all right, all right, how about this? Nate Dogg and Warren G regulate, but make it ventilate. And I will do a world-class job rapping that because I have a team, like my musical producer can make it sound dope. And, uh, and we did it and you have this gangster rap anthem about proning patients, about <laughs> getting these Q1 hour duoneb orders that are BS and all this other stuff. Sure. And you give it to them yeah. and they have this thing that, oh my gosh, somebody made me this thing, right? And and it's such a joy because then they're just like, hell yeah, finally. <laughs> and it's funny, um, you say that at the gold standard, uh, you know, the, I'm, I'm from Northwest Indiana. I did my high school there. And uh, uh, there's an Amish community close by in Napanee. And they have, you know, you can go and have like Amish dinner and stuff. And oh. I remember when Weird Al had his Amish, Amish par paradise. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, he pulled, he was, uh, I, I, you know, I guess I'm, I'm not in the Amish community. So I don't know how people would feel and if they felt in any way hurt by it. But I felt like he also had a bit of an affinity for, I mean, it wasn't like making fun. It was like, trying to see the purity and the good in what the Amish community does. And I've always had sort of a very fond place in my heart for, for those people. Um, he made that video, that's exactly what it is. It was done with love. It was done with love. It you was agree. done with love. And and you could watch it and it's funny and it's hilarious and he nails it. And then you're like, but he loves these people. Yeah, this it's, is it's not, not an yeah. insult. It's not an insult, yeah. And, and I think the same is true about, I mean, I think you you do a good job about, you know, respiratory techs. I mean, healthcare has become this very complex thing where there's so many 
parts to it. If you ask the average person what's a respiratory tech, they may not even know what that is, but it's an important job. And it's a job where, um, you know, I think people who do it, who do it well, um, they take a lot of pride in it. And we respect that as doctors too. I mean, how often do I see like the, the respiratory tech I really like to work with or something like that when I was yeah. working in the unit? And I was like, yeah. oh, yes. oh, thank God. Thank God, yeah. yeah. I feel like so good. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. my patients are in good hands and I'm gonna get like really good help. And and and, and, and that's, a, and, and so I, I think it's, people probably really appreciate that you are sort of capturing their experience and validating it to some degree. And you know what? They pay it forward. You know, either they subscribe to the show or they do something even better, which is I shoot a video at uh, San Mateo County Hospital over here and I need extras. Mm -hmm. So they put out a call. Mm -hmm. Who's going to come on a Saturday during a pandemic to shoot a video waiting on the world to change, celebrating sure. healthcare professionals? Every single person in their respiratory department showed up. Wow. Yeah, they were the majority of the video. And and when they asked them why, why would you come on a Saturday? And they go, because we love what you did for RTs in that video, Ventilate. And I'm like, you know, that video was, again, you don't get money for the video. You can't monetize a music video. And, and um, it comes back in these karmic ways. They wanna support this kind of movement, you know, which which is beautiful to see. Is your, I mean, if 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 you were if you weren't doing videos, what genre of music do you listen to? Were you you grew up on rap? You grew up on classic rock. What did you grow up on? Man, I was like a big prog rock guy, so oh, okay. I was listening to Rush and Yes. And, oh yeah, really? And yeah, yeah. Weird, right? And you know, guitar gods like Joe Satriani, Eric Johnson, Steve Vai. You know, uh, oh, so that type of that, that type, type of, of thing, guitar, not yeah. like Stevie Ray Vaughan, Hendrix. Uh, so what's weird is yeah. when I was young, I thought Stevie Ray Vaughan and Hendrix were inaccessible to me. It just was all emotion and yeah. no technique to yeah. my my ear. Now I look back and go, those are the guys that are the musicians. Like those guys were just feeling it. They were a conduit, like a hole in the universe. That's how I feel. I feel like Vi is like technically, technically brilliant, brilliant but, but, but Vaughn is like, he puts his soul there, man. And that's how I feel now. Yeah, that's and it took me some age and wisdom to see that because at the time I was focused on the technical aspects of guitar. And you know, this is something that's just come to me recently. I was listening to this book called Free Play on, it was Audible, one of Audible's free books that you get when you subscribe. And it was talking, it, it melds the sort of spiritual, mystical aspects of improvisation with ideas on how to improvise, music, comedy, whatever it is. And I realized listening to it, that's why I love doing uh, music, that's why I love doing live um, Facebook talks or YouTube talks, and I love live, because you open yourself up, you lose your sense of self, and you're a conduit for the unconscious. And allowing it to happen in the moment, that's why I love the technical aspects of guitar, because you could technically learn all these scales and patterns and how to go fast, then put on a backing set of chords and just improvise the hell out of it. And when you'd get in a flow state, I would do it in college occasionally, people would just be like, holy shit, like what just happened? And I'm like, I can't reproduce that. That was like, I can't describe what just happened. I wasn't me. It's like a Grateful and Dead concert. It is, it is, yeah. it is, it is. Fish or the Grateful yeah, Dead, something course, like that. Yeah. And so now I try more and more to access that in interviews and when I'm doing, like even now, like this is improvisation for of us. Of course, yeah, yeah. we yeah. can script this. No, that's so interesting to me um, at so many levels. I mean, one, I think, you're really right and about like live music and particularly people who do improvise in their in their performances and that's why you know for like many of the bands who get great draws it's that the, the 12 minute you know improvisational musical musical solos and things like that that people really love um, and then the other thing i was curious about is you know how do you feel the difference is between being a live performer on stage you know now we're covid so you're all doing it through a computer right um 
you feed off the crowd. Uh, you like to have a live audience. Uh, how, how do you how do you think about that? No, oh, these are good questions, man. And this is gets to the heart of the craft. The thing I loved about live performances, standing on that stage, maybe you know, and, and it ranges, right? So I did a gig at the LA Convention Center, ten thousand emergency nurses wow. in the audience, yeah. and and they're fans. Yeah. Like I couldn't get from one end of the hall to the other walking without just being mobbed. The guy at the airport, so I was at I was at uh, Wolfgang Puck's Pizza Restaurant in the airport going home after this thing, and the next day, and I was mobbed by people getting on the plane. Every single nurse was like, wanna do a selfie, wanna say thank you, wanted to, and the guy who was the waiter there was like, hey man, uh, like I see a lot of celebrities come through here. I've never seen anything like what's happening to you. Like what's going on? And I'm like, get on the good side of nurses, bro. <laughs> they'll take care of That's you. True. But but that that, being in the moment in an improvised way on a stage, even if you have prepared material, in other words, you know your slides and all sure. that, there's a flow state that happens, there's an improvisation that happens where you are synchronized with that audience in a way that is so indescribable and it's joyful and I would pay people to do it, right? And they're paying me to do it. Right. And now you do it by Zoom and the joy is sucked out of it. Oh so now God. what I do by Zoom, you know, when I do a Zoom talk and I have quite a few scheduled, is I improvise it entirely. There's no slides. I just get there and I go, okay, guys, here's, I know who this audience is. Let's just get into this. And, and, it, and that has its own beauty, but man, it's, it's a different vibe. Oh, that's, you, you've, you put it so well. I mean, I guess I, I, uh, um, I've never done what you do, obviously, because, you know, I've never done like uh, musical performance in front of, oh, that's not true. Uh, <laughs> uh, Hello, one... my baby. Hello, my darling. <laughs> Hello, my ragtime gal. There's one. You got to tell us. You got to tell us. A couple of talent shows yeah. or something. Oh, that's cool. Nice. I used to play guitar oh. I, I, and um, and I used to write like original songs um, nice. a little bit. Uh, um, uh, and, uh, you know, actually, um, maybe like uh, if you're like this, it's like a, like the tiny fraction. But like that's no. the same kind of thing. I mean, I just had one humorous one many years ago. Um, but anyway, but I, 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 um, but but that's not what I do for like a living, of course. But I do give a lot of lectures, a lot yeah, of lectures, yeah, and yeah, a, yeah. a lot of lectures in front of live audiences, and um, and one of the things I do in the live lecture is um, the topics are often controversial, um, and I know my audience doesn't like my topic, how or at least their preconceived notion is that I'm not going to like this guy. For instance. I'm gonna to go to an oncology audience and talk about um, how the drug approvals are often bad or conflict of interest is a problem, things that they probably prima facie view the other way. And I spend a lot of time thinking beforehand about um, how do you actually move someone on an issue, which we kind of talked about in our thing. It's different than um, like when you start with the premise that the person disagrees with you and you wanna bring them on your side by the end of it. And, um, and I, that's, so that's part of what my goal is, is to change their mind. The other part of the goal is I'm like, I want to entertain this person. Like they, I want them to say, even if I hate like VP's guts, I hate everything he said. I'm glad I sat there for an hour because you know, he, he entertained me or I wasn't bored. And I personally hate to be in a lecture that's boring. Yeah. And there's something that happens. I think when you're giving a lecture, um, I think you, I always start like I'm, I, maybe sometimes I, I intentionally stumble in the beginning to make, you know, seem like I don't know what I'm doing. Stumble, have some, you know, hiccups or something. And then, and then, then as you're going, you, you feel like you're getting their attention. Uh, well, like at least I feel in a lecture, I'm like, okay, now they're oh, really paying attention, really paying attention, really paying attention. And then you start to feel the audience. And, and sometimes in a moment where, as you put it, you're in the flow of your, of your lecture or whatever you're doing on stage. You, you feel like it got all their attention. Mm. And, and I really have it. And like, I really have it. And then 
as you say something, sometimes it, you feel up there, like I can feel how they're feeling about what I'm saying and I can tweak it just a little bit, soften it when I need to soften or harden it up and come in really on the, on the hard end of the issue, right? And, and I feel as if like as a speaker, I'm in tune to the audience on that. And so I wonder if you sometimes feel that it is sort of a give and take, um, that it's, it's, it's more than just what you wanted to say, that you're reading them and giving them kind of what they want to hear. <laughs> Man, what you just said was so on point of the description of the experience of being in that state. And, and a thousand percent yes. In fact, I do some of the same thing. So I'll start out with like a really dumb joke that they're just gonna be like, this guy's corny as hell. Yes, yes. I hate this guy. Yes. And, and you fumble around and you kind of joke about the slides, not whatever it is. And then you start to build it. And I'll tell you, it is an organism that you form. It's a higher instantiation of consciousness. So you have your one conscious agent, their 500, whatever it is, or two or 50, however big your audience is. When you start to synchronize around everybody's attention on one idea, you form a higher agent, I think, and you feel it. And so what you're talking about, a carving through that, that slope, down the hill on your snowboard, carving around and going, okay, here's an obstacle here, I'm gonna turn it this way, I'm gonna get a little more momentum, I'm gonna do this. That is a gifted speaker, because what happens is you see it, you feel it, you can see it and feel it at the same time, and when it hits, like I've had experiences on stage where I'm moved to tears, by the amount of attention. You feel the attention. You feel it yeah. because, because there's something that you've hit on that's a universal experience. And then it feeds back in the emotion you provide back. And at the end, people are like, you know, I cried during this talk about fucking hell 3.0. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, it wasn't that awesome? And you're still feeling it, you know, in the selfie line. It's a beautiful thing. And, and I think we have short shrifted people into not saying that that's on offer. Like that's on offer. Learn to be an amazing speaker. Go out and do the 10,000 hours of it. You're so right. And you know, um, somebody once showed me a video clip and I don't, uh, it was before my time, but it was um, Freddie Mercury, Wembley Stadium. And he does that improvisational um, where he sort of belts out some notes. I've seen it. Yeah. It's 80,000 people yeah. belting it out. He's got everyone's attention in there. And I was like, this guy's got, you don't, I was like, you don't understand what he's done. He's got 80,000 people's attention, 100% attention. They're not thinking about anything other than what he wants them to think about. And he's getting them to sing because that's how captain, you know, that's how good that guy was, right? And of course, his, his genre of being on stage is different. Um, I think about all the lectures I attend where as an audience, I feel they don't have my attention. You know, I know they don't. I'm, I'm yeah. on my phone. And, yeah. I, and, and I think like, I feel bad for the speaker. Yeah. I feel bad like you don't even know what you're missing. Like, <laughs> like you, you, you have this rare opportunity. You got all us in the room. We're sitting here out of the rules of decorum. We're going to sit here quietly, but we're not going to pay attention to you until you build it. And if you had just really spent a lot of time thinking about what you wanted to say, how you wanted to say it, um, had really had a message you wanted to get across and really wanted to persuade us or whatever you want to do up there. I think there are many different goals you can have. It could be to entertain, to delight. It could be to change their mind, to persuade, but you have to think, how do you get them there? Build every step of it. I think you talk about it so nicely that you start to feel it coalesce. Mm. You, you bumble in the beginning, you start to get it. Because if you go in too strong, I think you push people 
people away. You push people away. You push yeah. people away. You got to bumble. You got to look like you don't know what you're doing. But then finally you build it and you get your theme going and you pick it up and then the tempo comes in and it comes in and and and, and, and then you've got them. And it's a unique opportunity because, I mean, we use it for different purposes, perhaps. Perhaps, perhaps not really. Maybe, maybe yeah, they're more maybe similar than, they're, than we think, yeah, right? Yeah. It's just a different method. I mean, yeah, we want to entertain. Um, I really want to change their mind. I mean, that my goal is to like, I want them to say like, this drug is shitty at the end. You know, that's yeah, what I, exactly. I mean. I've got yeah. a goal. Yeah. Um, but, but there's something to that. And that is what I think is dead in Zoom. It, uh, agree. It is a, it's a, oh, so, so, so it's funny because you, you and I, even now we're forming a, 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 a higher conscious agent of yes, two people that are this. so aligned on this and, and you can feel it, right? You can feel that vibe. You don't get that on Zoom. You don't get it. You, you, you get blank faces, little squares or nothing or no feedback. And so I've done a few of these Zoom talks now and it is so dispiriting as a performer because all the joy of that gets sucked away, but then you get feedback afterwards. That was the best Zoom talk we've ever had. That was great. And you're like, okay, so the bar is that low. Yes, it's that low. That's what I found out. So I was yeah. like, what are you talking about? That was the best you've got? I was yeah. like, this is fucking Zoom. Let's come, yeah, let's get, that. that I mean, that's why we're in a physical space together, right? It, of course. It, and you can do it on the phone. You can, I find that the phone is actually better than Zoom. Because you're so, so much better. tuned into that audio. Oh, Z-Dog, I'm yeah. so, I, 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 I love that you said, and I also find that like, um, if I have a friend with a really crisp phone signal, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's even better oh, than better. when you get the friend with the shitty reception. And I'm just like, dude, this is over. Let's not even have this conversation. I can't hear like every fifth word you say. Yeah. Why are we doing Why this? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Walking through, going through the motions. Um, you're, you're spot on. The phone does it. The phone does it. The live audience does it. And that's why when all these people talk their big game about whatever, education is going to go online. We're going to do these modules and it's going to be, you watch a video. Why do you hear someone speak when you can watch a video? I was like, none of you actually understand live talking to people because it's like the video is not the same. It's never going to be the same. It's always going to be shitty. This is the way to do it. It's going to go back to the way it was. You will quickly see and you you are all wrong. This is not going to change transform. You agree with me? It's going to go back. Oh man, I feel like I'm in the church of communication. Communication, yeah. the church of connection. That's really that's really what it is, man. And and I've done videos where I'm like, oh, Zoom is a poison, and we have Zoom fatigue. But that that's just scratching the surface of what it is. Now, now, what, now, here's a question to you. You made a distinction, which I think is so important. A good phone signal yes. and a crappy phone signal. Uh, uh, and the way I like to think of this is in the early days of cell phone, it was unusable because you would talk over each other because there was so much delay. Oh, yes. And that is poisonous to conversation. It's poisonous to flow state because you don't have the normal give and take. But what if we made, what if Zoom's technology was so advanced that you had real time, no lag, in the room, 3D virtual goggles on? Do you think that would fix the problem? Yeah, now you're you're getting to the thought experiments I think about, which is like, what if, um, what if you and I are in separate rooms, but it's just like this? Yeah, maybe. Um, but I think uh, maybe that would get at it. Maybe there's something additional that you won't get. I mean, because mm. like I'm not just hearing you talk; I'm seeing you're looking at me. Subtleties, very small things that, and 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 probably I can't even articulate all the things I'm seeing because I'm a product of evolution to, right. to to read you in this way. It's like the number one goal of my survival has been to read people like you and and what, how you feel towards me. Um, uh, you talk about the millisecond lag on the phone; it's deadly. Yeah. Um, international calls, WhatsApp, deadly. Uh, on Epic, it's also deadly. Oh, 
when you're writing a note and then I'm like, I want to know what the, um, what the potassium was. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just stood up with my hands in the air. I keep going, please. You're writing a note and you're like, oh, what was that MRI image? And I click on the images tab and then that there's that one second, maybe 0.8 of one second. And I'm like, and then I'm like, oh, what's on Twitter? My mind is gone. I'm out of the note. I'm out of the epic. This fucking epic and these lags. The the people who make these, uh, I, I'm gonna. This is my podcast. <laughs> Go, I please. can say how I yes. want to say. People who make these shitty EMRs. They're all shit. They they can they can make a shit EMR because they've written lobbyist bills that forced us to adopt their shitty EMR before it was really good enough to adopt. So they've forced us to do it so they can provide a shit product. You, If you had Twitter with these millisecond delays of Epic, no one would ever use that product. Facebook, no one would ever use. Everyone who makes in a product that they actually want people to use, make it very responsive because human beings die in those half a second that this stupid software takes to load up whatever you want to see. I hate this Epic experience. It is awful. And no system is perfect. The best is the VA system because it's so bare bones that it's faster at least. Um, that's the only saving grace uh so it doesn't bore me to death but i get bored to death i lose it it's it, it, the whole thing is over every fucking thing you just said is like it, if i could write a bible about everything that's wrong you'd ask me about burnout yeah epic goes live and then we have remote access so now i can get the fuck out of the hospital if i finish up seeing my patients do the in-person stuff that i can't go home write my notes there is a 10, 20, 50 millisecond delay in the VPN oh, to do yeah. epic notes. So pulling in data, painful. Putting in data, uh, just beyond an eye poke. And you're doing this and you're like, oh, and you're distracted. And it's and you and then you try to articulate it to the epic, you know, champion. And you're like, well, could you guys do anything about this lag? Oh, well, that's your internet uh, provider. Your internet, yeah, I'm yeah, sure, yeah, you know. Well, well, how come there's a slight lag in the hospital too? Well, you know, these are complex systems. Why? The VAs doesn't have a lag, like you said. It's really dumbed down. It's easy, you know, why are we? It was so painful. So and painful. you know what I think? I wonder if it's everybody who senses this or if it's just very attuned people to communication like you and I who are like, this is what we do. But but I think everybody does. I really do. And oh, they I just think can't articulate. They can't articulate. They just yeah. hate it. They hate doing notes at home. Yeah. A note that should take five minutes takes an hour right. because you've been distracted four times because the stupid thing has lag. The people who you complain to, they don't get it. They they have no skin in the game. They, you're forced to use their software that you've paid a billion dollars for. Your health. Thank uh, you, Judy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know what to say. I mean, I think it's a huge... It's a huge scam. They, I mean, like the thing about the EMR is, first of all, <laughs> if somebody actually did a study of like, this is this is this is this is me speculating, but I suspect I'd be right. You did a primary care doctor study, and you asked of all the things in the EMR that the, you you could imagine, you could print it all out for a patient, and it'd be like I don't know, a thousand pages. What percent of those pages has the primary care doctor looked at? And I bet the answer will be like 2.5. On average, I mean, I'm just speculating, but it'll be something like the doctor has looked at three pages worth of data in a data collection space of a thousand pages. Like mm. it's just a fragment of data Tiny. you look at because it's so cumbersome and slow to look through all the data. Um, in the old days, when we would have the paper chart, I still remember it, you could actually look through hundreds yep. of pages very quickly. Physically, Physically, yeah. you could look through very quickly. So I think we do, it actually slows how much data we consume. Putting in the data is, it's, it's just a sea of dot phrases and garbage because typing in data to that thing is such a pain. Um, being bored by the EMR, 
It's horrific. People used to complain how hard it was to find the chart. At least once you found it, you didn't have to wait for anything anymore. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. It was interesting. It was interesting. Like you once flipped you through it like yeah, a damn book. You were like, wait, okay, wait, wait, what did he have to say? Oh, he wrote his note and it's all scribble, but I can understand it because I'm a doctor too. And, and you know, this idea that, um, that the EMR changes our cognition yeah, it does. as clinicians. So even inputting data, it used to be there was a hand, brain, thought, uh, synergy when you write notes, which is why even when we had our EHR, I would take all the notes on my patient by hand, and then I would do data entry like a damn clerk at the end of the night when I was on call. And and it, on my hand note, there were these arrows and connections and CHF and then salt and oh, he's a he, non-compliant and this and that. And then you put it in the thing, uh, assessment, CHF, uh, dot phrase uh, will continue to follow. Bullshit. It's bullshit, but, yeah. but without that cognitive component of writing, I wouldn't have been able to think about the patient correctly even. Because our our writing and our cognition are, are so deeply evolved together. It's like you said, like so much stuff is happening under the hood due to millions of years of evolution. I can see you sitting there now in your really cool shirt, which I want, <laughs> by the way, uh, you know, kind of nodding and tapping your fingers and all this I'm taking in unconsciously instantly and making an assessment of what your internal mental state is, yes. which allows me then to synchronize and understand and feedback. All of that is robbed for us. Oh. Uh, and 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 and, and the, I, I say that, that medicine has an analog heart and, and that's what it is. That's what it is, yeah. But you can use, you can make better digital technology. It's just, we're not there. And what, what look, look, okay, it's been 10 years since I've really done a lot of epic in a hospital where my life depends on it and I'm billing for it. Nothing has changed. The story you're telling me <laughs> is exactly the same story that I was feeling 10 years ago. Yes. So what does that say? What does that say? These assholes aren't incentivized to, to right. make it better. I, we screwed up because we talked too long earlier. So now we're, I, I gotta walk out of here. Um, <laughs> I, Clinic. I, I want to pick up this conversation where we left off because because there's still more. This yeah. is this is the, this is going to be a two part interview plenary session. So okay, so in the future we're going to talk about okay, we're going to pick up the thread. You started to make the first few music videos. How does this thing take off? Um, we're going to pick up the thread on this EMR and this lag and why it, it's really tied to burnout. It really is deeply deeply tied. Um, there are uh, it used to be the days where doctors. Um, being a doctor was really, really fun. It's still really fun for a lot of it, but it's not as fun as it used to be because people outside of medicine have have made, taken away our the, the, some of the joys and made it a lot more painful for I us. I want to do a whole show on that if that's let's, okay. Yeah, that would be that. amazing because yeah. you, you've, you've nailed it. I mean, that's what it is. It yeah. sucked the joy out of this and I still feel it when I go around at UNLV. Yeah. Still the remote epic. Yeah. Z-Dog, pleasure to, yeah, pleasure to start. This is, I'm going to put this out and then um, and we'll talk some more. What a joy, dude. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right, I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Karine Tawagi. Dr. Tawagi is a fellow at the Oshner Medical Center in New, no, not in New Orleans. Yeah, in New Orleans, in New Orleans, Louisiana. Yeah, yeah, in New Orleans, yeah. And she is a two-time champion of Journal Club with a fellow. <laughs> Good to have you back. Thanks for doing this yeah, again. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to discuss this study. This good study. People really enjoyed your last visit. I think um, we got we got many people who thought it was it was a fair and balanced summary of uh, of Imbrave. 
Good. Well, I hope that they can say the same about this um, dissection of Javelin 100. So. Oh, of course. The fav- everyone's favorite study, Javelin yes. 100. All right. So why don't, you, why don't we just jump right in? So tell us about Javelin 100 and ASCO plenary. Sure. So Javelin 100 was a study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, September 18th, 2020. And it was discussing the study which led to the FDA approval in June um, and the NCCN Category 1 recommendation for abelumab following gemcitabine with a platinum agent, so either cisplatin or carboplatin, or dosense MVEC. Um, so just a little bit of background. We know that for advanced urothelial carcinoma, most patients have disease progression within nine months and a median OS of 14 to 15 months with cisplatin-based regimens and then nine to 10 months with carboplatin-based regimens. So one of the theories is that this watch and wait um, period is not ideal for patients who may not make it to second line therapy. And previous studies have shown that only 30 to 50% of patients who progress after first line chemo go on to subsequent therapy. And as we know, urothelial carcinoma has um, high genomic instability, a high PDL1 expression, and high tumor mutational burden, mm-hmm. uh, which are features obviously that are known to have an increased response to immune checkpoint inhibitors. So there have been previous approvals for other immune checkpoint inhibitors in the space of bladder cancer. So we have atezolizumab and pembrolizumab, which are both approved in the first-line setting for cisplatin ineligible patients or patients that have a high PD-L1 expression. And then we also have five approvals for immunotherapy agents in the second-line setting after progression uh, on cisplatin agents. So it is a space where, I mean, checkpoint inhibitors definitely have activity and they definitely have a use. Mm -hmm. And prior to Javelin 100, I guess, um, how would you say you have a new patient in your office and they present with, let's just say, maybe de novo metastatic bladder cancer. Um, And let's say they've got a number of liver mets and a number of lung mets. Um, And let's say they're they're kind of symptomatic, so they need therapy. So what what would be your sort of go-to um, and let's say this person is platinum eligible. So how would you treat them, you know, just before this study came out, what would be your treatment? So before this study came out, the standard of care was cisplatin-based regimen. So you would probably do cisplatin based on the higher response um, for four to six cycles. Obviously, if they're tolerating it, you might push the six cycles. But sure. if uh, there has been a previous study that has shown that the medium number of cycles did not significantly change the overall survival, whether they got four or six. So they're either are acceptable, but I think most people would probably push the six cycles for those patients that tolerate it. And then you would watch the patient and uh, unfortunately, probably, let's assume they have stable disease or better. That's the best case scenario. But we know there are a bunch mm-hmm. of people who progress on primary treatment. For the people with stable disease or better, you watch them and within two to four months, you know, at least half of them, probably even more in the real world, would have progressive disease. And so then you'd be thinking about giving them a drug. And so prior to this study, what would you think about giving them? So you probably consider something like pembrolizumab. I agree, because, um, yeah, we had, we had phase three studies showing pembro better than chemo in the second line. Okay. So, okay. Now you, you've got me. That's what, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's what I came into this study thinking, which is chemo platinum doublet frontline Pembro second line. That's the standard of care for these patients. And then the reality is, I don't know, you're going to tell us some point how long these people survive. It blew me away because it's so far away from people's actual clinical experience. I think where bladder cancer is a really aggressive cancer. Um, 
but we'll talk about that. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, of note, there have been a lot of other studies that have looked at maintenance therapy after this platinum doublet, including studies looking at sunitinib, lapatinib, vinflumine, and then bevacizumab, all four negative studies. Um, so this Javelin 100 study is an open-label phase three randomized trial to determine whether regular surveillance with Avelumab is better than just best supportive care after first-line platinum-based therapy for patients that did not have evidence of disease progression. And these patients were stratified according to best response to first-line chemotherapy and metastatic disease when the first-line chemotherapy was started, uh, whether they had visceral disease or non-visceral disease. And of note, non-visceral disease did include patients with bone meds. Um, and so as we know, Avelumab is a pdl one monoclonal antibody. It was given every two weeks, 10 milligrams per kilogram indefinitely. Um, and the inclusion criteria for this trial were patients over the age of 18, uh, as we mentioned, with locally advanced or metastatic urofilo cancer that had a CR, PR, or stable disease after four to six cycles, and a treatment-free interval of four to 10 weeks. These patients were quite fit with an ECOG of zero to one, and the exclusion criteria were receipt of adjuvant or neoadjuvant therapy within 12 months and contraindications or previous exposure to immune checkpoint inhibitors. This trial was sponsored by Pfizer and Merck and your favorite writing assistants uh, <laughs> by a professional medical writer. <laughs> it is my favorite. <laughs> and in terms of assessments, these patients had scans done every eight weeks with a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis for 12 months and then every 12 weeks in cell progression. Okay. Okay, so that's a good good to know. So, um, industry-sponsored study. I guess the only thing, and maybe you mentioned it, but maybe I was lost in my own mind for a second, but maybe you mentioned it, which is what glo it, it's done globally. It's done all around the world. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Globally, yes. So we will um, discuss the demographics of our okay. patients. So the primary endpoints were overall survival in the overall population and pdl one positive population. PDL1 was measured using the SP263 assay, mm. which historically has been shown to have a higher proportion of PDL1 expression as compared to other assays, such as the SP142 assay. I didn't know that. Is that true? Yeah. So there, there's, I saw this chart that someone had posted looking at all of the different assays and the expression that is reported um, in urethral cancer. And the SP263 assay generally has about 60% that will be considered PDL1 positive as opposed to the 30% range in the SP142 assay. Interesting. Do you know, like, for instance, what they use in your hospital? What they, uh, so we use the assay under which the drug is approved. Oh, so. you do? Okay. Oh, all right. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. Um, and so the secondary endpoints were PFS, objective response, time to response, duration of response, and safety. Um, in terms of the statistical analysis, uh, the type 1 error rate was maintained at or below the one-sided level of 0.025 by allocating an alpha of 0.015 to, in the overall survival comparison in the overall population and an alpha of 0.01 in the, to the overall survival comparison of the PDL1 positive population. Hmm. I see. Okay. So they did split the alpha. I didn't know that. Okay. So that's, in, that's interesting. So basically what they're saying is... Um, even if they were unable to eke out a survival benefit in the whole population, they still had a little bit of alpha and they might have been able to eke out a survival benefit in the PDL1 positive population. Okay. And that would be about 60% of people based on the way this assay works. Okay. That's good to know. So jumping to our results, we had 
data collected from 2016 to 2019. And as you mentioned, it was a global study. So there were 197 sites in 29 countries. About two thirds of these patients were in Europe. There were only 7% of patients in this trial that were enrolled in North America. And there were a total of 700 patients. Um, in terms of the PDL1 positivity, it was similar to what I reported in the SP263 assay. So 57.6% were PDL1 positive in the treatment arm, and then 56.3% in the control arm. Median age of patients was 68 to 70. Again, not well represented in terms of racial. Um, racial minorities, so only three black patients out of 700 were enrolled. Um, there were two-thirds that had an ECOG of zero, two-thirds of patients with lower tract disease. They were split evenly among visceral and non-visceral METs, about half and half, and 32 to 42 percent of patients received carboplatin rather than cisplatin-based. Hmm. Okay. In terms of response, three-quarters of patients had a complete or partial response and about a quarter of patients had stable disease after their four to six cycles of the platinum doublet. There were 11.1% of patients that had to discontinue treatment due to adverse events. And then going into the supplemental table two, which I know is gonna be a big point of discussion for us, in the control arm, 61.7% of patients went on to second line therapy, of which 43% in the best supportive care arm received PD-1 or PDL-1 inhibitor in the second line setting at time of progression. In terms of our endpoints, um, the overall survival in the overall population was 21.4 months as opposed to 14.3 months in the control arm. And in the and the OS at one year was 71.3% versus 58.4%. And in the PDL-1 positive population was 79.9% versus 60.4%. Um, PFS, so in the over in the treatment arm, it was 3.7 months as opposed to 2.0 months in the control group. So, um, you know, at first scans, a lot of the patients in the control group progressed right away. Right away. So that's very interesting, which is that because somebody pointed this out to me because you were going to talk about it, but, you know, I was critical of this trial. And so somebody was like, well, you know what? You're critical, but by your own metric, you would treat these people second line. Well, the control arm patients are going to be second line in about one minute. You know, in, in, in two months, 50% right. of them will be second line. Um, but then I but I looked at it later and I was like, well, in the if you got a Velumab, um, the progression was also super fast. The median PFS was 3.7 months. So before four right. months, you're on second line therapy if you're on a Velumab for half of people. So, right. you know, this idea that giving them a Velumab maintenance is going to, you know, give you a lot of time before you can think about the second line therapy. That's not necessarily true. Even in the Avalumab arm, that, that Kaplan-Meier curve is precipitously falling. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's just something to note. But yeah. Yeah. And I was looking, yeah. I'm curious if you know, let me see if I can find it. Um, what is the response rate for cisgem in urothelial carcinoma? Because in this study, three out of every four people had CR or PR. But I think the response rate is closer to about 50% or even lower for cisgem just in non-selected bladder cancer patients. I'm going to try to find that. So in terms of the PFS in the pdl one positive population, it was 5.7 months as opposed to 2.1 months. And in terms of the response rate, 9.7% in the velumab group versus 1.4% in the control group. 
And then in the PDL1 population, it was 13.8% versus 1.2%. In terms of the safety events, 98% of patients in the treatment arm had adverse events. And most of the grade two common adverse events were UTIs, anemia, hematuria, fatigue. You know, one of the criticism was that, you know, some of these toxicities can be attributed to the disease rather than the drug, perhaps. And 9% of patients in the Avelumab group received high-dose steroids due to an adverse event. Out of the patients that did receive Avelumab, 11.9% had to discontinue the therapy because of adverse event. And again, as we mentioned, this is given on an indefinite schedule. Yes. Um, so we can jump to some of our discussion here and some of the limitations. So I think that one of the greatest criticism of this trial design is that it was a global study, so only 43% of patients upon progression went on to what is arguably the standard of care uh, with immune checkpoint inhibitors. So I know that we briefly mentioned, you know, there's the phase two pembrolizumab study where they had 60% crossover when patients progressed, and that study was published in JCO in 2020, and they had a PFS benefit but no OS benefit. So this bears the question of, if we had a higher rate of crossover to immune inhibitors at time of progression, would we still have this OS benefit with the velumab or not? Yeah, that's a great point. So I think that like, and, and that's a point I keep coming to, which is like, if your primary endpoint is anything that happens after progression-free survival one, PFS one, if your primary endpoint is anything beyond that, it's affected not just by what you do during the study, but also by what you do after the study. And one of the things they're doing after the study here is they have a bunch of people who are getting some second line therapy, but arguably, you know, one in every uh, three people who gets a second line drug is not getting the best second line drug. They're getting, I don't know, some barbaric old chemotherapy drug instead of pembrolizumab. Only 40% of people are getting pembrolizumab. Now, of course, there's some people who haven't yet progressed, but what that number should be in a perfect world if this were run just in high quality medical centers I think it should at least be 60%, which is the total number of people got second-line therapy, but probably even a little bit higher because I bet there are a few people who are falling through cracks in systems that exist globally that don't exist here. And so then the question really is, if, if you would have had a control arm where 60% of people got checkpoint inhibitor second line, which really is not that long, half of those people, they're going to be getting it, you know, um, not half, but yeah, 50% maybe of the 60% are people progressing within two months. So they're going to get the second line checkpoint inhibitor really, really soon. Um, would you still have had the OS benefit? And I think there's a big question mark there. And one of the type, one of the clues you come up with um, is that very interesting phase two study. Let me see if I pulled it up. I have a slide on it or maybe a couple. Um, and this came out in the JCO. This was slightly different because it was uh, the GU14182 study, 100 people, very small sample size. Um, they took people who had stable disease or better after eight cycles of platinum doublet, so not four to six. So if anything, they got like more treatment up front, um, which I think would make it harder to get an OS benefit in this setting. Um, and then they had crossover built into the study, and I think something like 50 plus percent, maybe close to 60% ended up getting crossover, and they did not find a survival benefit. So that suggests that maybe some of the benefit of Avelumab is not that you put somebody on maintenance, but that you gave them a checkpoint inhibitor at all, because the control right. arm, some people who should have gotten it are probably never getting it. Right, right. 
And I think this also brings the question of cost effectiveness uh, versus survival benefits. So, you know, we know I calculated for a 60 kilogram patient oh, yeah. for three months of tri treatment on Avelumab, that would be about $27,000. Um, and, you know, the patient has to come in every two weeks. This also bears the question of could a different immune checkpoint inhibitor be studied that has a better schedule? So pembrolizumab is studied now on a six-week schedule. Yes. You know, that avoids two extra visits for a patient with stage four cancer and a limited life expectancy to be coming to the clinic oh, that's interesting. frequently. I've, and I, 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 I'm careful what to say because I, I have a study I want to do in this space. But, but one of the things you're alluding to, and I don't want to tell people my idea because they're going to steal it, and then I'll and then I'll be asked to review my own idea. And it'll kill me. But um, I guess one of the things you're hinting at is um, that there is this thing called therapeutic burden, and it's beyond other burdens. There's financial burdens, which are bad. There are toxicity burdens, which are bad. And then there's therapeutic burden, which is the burden of having to go to the doctor at all. And I guess I personally suffer from it greatly because there is no, I mean, I, have, I don't go to the doctor that often, but I've had to go to the doctor a few times in my life. And it is absolute torture for me to wait. I hate it. I hate every minute of it. And there are a lot of people, particularly those nearing the end of life, who don't want to spend what little time they have coming and going to the doctor's office. And as we know, many patients are coming from quite a distance. And so there's long mm -hmm. car drives and stuff like that and, yeah. and the infusion time. So I think you're making a good point, which is the schedule of a drug does have implications for therapeutic burden. And Pembro now has that really prolonged administration, which, which is convenient for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to, if, you know, if we were to design a study in this space to do a North America only study to obviously include more racial minorities and have a higher proportion of black patients and to allow, as you mentioned, at least a 60% crossover to immune checkpoint inhibitor, whether, you know, Avelumab is picked or a different immune therapy agent. Um, yeah. And to see if there is still an OS benefit um, as opposed to just uh, best supportive care for these patients. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And, and one of the things sometimes people who are, who would, who would criticize that point of view, they say to me is, Look, um, the, 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 in the real world, many, many people die before getting second-line therapy. Um, and, and so uh, this percentage could not be any higher. And what I want to say is that you're comparing apples and oranges. You're comparing your clinical experience to the people in this trial. They're different for a couple of reasons. One, to get on this trial, you have to have stable disease or better. You know, you can't have progressive mm -hmm. disease in the front line. Mm -hmm. So you're already excluding, you know, a quarter or more people who don't even have stable disease. Two, there are all these additional hoops to jump through to enroll in any trial. And proof that these people are so different than your clinical experience is these people, when they get placebo, they live 14 months. 14 months, I think many of us would be lucky if our average person walking in the do door with de novo bladder cancer lives 14 months. You know, that's the survival in the original phase three trial of GC versus MVAC was about 14 months. And those are trial patients, you know? So I guess second line, uh, you know, essentially a maintenance or second line trial with a 14 month OS benefit, uh, oh, not OS benefit, but just OS in the control arm tells you these are really carefully selected patients. And a carefully selected patient should be much more likely to get second line therapy than the, the average patient in your clinic. So I think that, you know, that, that does go into what you're saying, which is that if this trial were done at high quality centers, as the, um, that phase two pembrolizumab trial was done, which did have a higher crossover rate, 
despite the fact they got more initial therapy. So that's another difference. Um, the less initial therapy you get, the earlier you are in, in the course of someone's illness. And I think the greater the opportunity there would be to give them a second line drug because they've had less frontline therapy. In that trial, they had more frontline therapy. So it should be less and it's still 10% more. I guess maybe maybe I've confused yeah. myself by going talking like that. No, okay. <laughs> um, that's an, that's I, an interesting point. Okay. You have another yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I think, you know, the overall consensus, of, you know, discussing this with other oncologists is that people do think this is changing the standard of care and that especially for patients that have stable disease or partial response after their initial chemotherapy will go on to giving this development maintenance. Um, but to have a low threshold to hold it if it's affecting a patient's quality of life. I see. Now, let me ask you this. Before this study, have you ever given a Velumab? I have not. I know it's approved in Merkel cell, but haven't... <laughs> Haven't, uh, no, have not given it. I was going to point out that Merkel cell approval. That's the approval that earns them the big bucks. Don't you, <laughs> don't you feel a little pity for them over in Pfizer? You know, Merck is just destroying them. BMS has got the rest of the market share with Nevo. And then, of course, um, Genentech swoops in with, they just add a little Bev to everything. They got Bevitezo and they got the HCC market space. You just, you want, come on, let's throw them a bone. They got nothing going on for them here with Avalumab. They finally eke out a win. They need some, they need to pay off their Avalumab development. Um, do you feel a little pity for them? I sometimes do, I must admit. <laughs> Yeah, they needed to fit into this space uh, somehow, um, which also brings me to the point of other studies of immune checkpoint inhibitors in bladder cancer. So there's obviously been a lot of other studies underway. Um, I know that you might have talked about this in a previous podcast, but the Invigor 130, yes, um, where they had platinum-based chemo with a Tezo in the first-line setting, and ultimately the PFS was met, but the interim OS was not met, yeah. and I think there's been a lot of questions as to why this was a negative study as opposed to the Javelin 100 study. And I know there's various theories, um, including the high proportion of patients that received carboplatin, um, the theory of immune exhaustion with the patients that got gemcitabine and carboplatin, and whether that doesn't allow the immune response that you would expect with immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, and there's a few other studies as well. Um, there was the Danube study, which is looking at chemotherapy versus dervalumab alone versus combination dervalumab and trimalimumab. Um, and so far, did not meet its endpoints. Yeah, I um, thought that was negative too. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's the Keynote 361, okay. um, which yes. is the one that was presented at ESMO this year, which is chem chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab in the first line setting. Not so good. And fails to meet yeah. primary endpoints. Okay. Yes, not so good. No PFS or OS benefit reported. There is the LEAP 011 study, which is pembrolizumab with lumbatinib in the patients that are cisplatin eligible oh, or have be, a high PL1. What could be better? What could be better than this <laughs> pembrolizumab? Lumbatinib. Okay. Okay. Yes, add that in. Uh huh. And then finally, the check, Checkmate 901, which is looking also at. Nevo. Similar to the Danube, but combination um, immunotherapy, so Nevo-IP um, versus Nevo plus chemo versus chemo standard of care. So I think that one, uh, we don't have results yet, but it'll be interesting to see also where Javelin fits in if there is eventually a first-line approval of a combo chemotherapy, immunotherapy in a first-line setting. 
It's interesting to me that um, I have a feeling that if if I if you roll the dice four times and it came up four, six, and then two, and you went in a room with twenty expert oncologists and said, "Can you guys tell me a story why it's four, six, and two? They'd come up with all sorts of all sorts of reasons why it it was that order, which uh, which I think sometimes I worry what we do with these trials because I mean what you're kind of portraying is this picture, which is that. Um, I don't know how to put it. I guess I would say many, many people are running trials in this space, trying to move checkpoint inhibitors earlier. Most of the people are striking out. One trial is, is significant. So what is possibility A? Possibility A is there are genuine biological differences about this drug and the way in which they have picked the population um, that definitely provide a benefit in this setting and all the other ones are truly negative. Option B might be... Um, this has a benefit for some spurious artifactual reason that's hard to recapitulate or extrapolate. And yet in oncology world, we will always think of reasons why this is a real win and everything else is fell short rather than the other possibility that, that this is also kind of just an artifact mm -hmm. or, or chance. Yeah. So chance plus poor second line therapy plus really, really sort of cherry picking patients by not having given them enough chemo and then quickly whisking them to a, a trial um, uh, with pretty poor second line therapy. And, and, and poor second line therapy, it's not just second line therapy that's poor for the control arm patients. I would imagine that maybe their supportive care is not as good as it would be in the United States. Maybe there are lots of other differences about the care provided there um, that are different. Their availability of radiotherapy, the availability of palliative care, of I don't know, pain control. I mean, I'm speculating, but it, it's never really been fully, fully kind of vetted. So I guess I thought your focus is GI malignancies. I'm also doing GU oncology. That's good. I, I think I'm actually probably going to do mostly GU. And are you on the job market yet? Yes. Oh, so I think listeners of Plenary Session should know that they should hire you. So, uh, but do you want to go back to Canada <laughs> or the U.S.? I am... Uh, evaluating my options right now so i see that means you're open to canada yes canadian researchers kareen tawaji is a is a canadian citizen you want her you want her in your research institution so maybe maybe who knows plenary session might lead to a job so okay so you're gi and gu and um so what's your takeaway for this study are you doing it in some subpopulation do you like it are you waiting for more data you're waiting for these frontline studies what's your takeaway I think my takeaway is for a patient with um, that doesn't achieve a CR, I would definitely consider giving this if they have stable disease or PR, you know, with the point that I would worry that if they're high burden disease, they might not get to second line therapy. Um, obviously, there are issues, as we mentioned with this trial, and hopefully more data in this space can help clarify some of these issues. But I think to the point of having that patient in your clinic, you don't want to hold therapy for them. And so I think that ultimately with that on your conscience, most people will probably go forward with this regimen. That's an interesting, that's an, I haven't heard that one. Um, and I guess I would say that I think about it, that's actually quite interesting because I mean, if we're perfectly honest, I, I, they, I, they didn't provide a progression-free survival curve just for the stable disease people, did they? Or was it in the supplement or something? But I just, um, it, it's got to be, sure. it's got to be precipitous. I mean, if the PFS curve is 50% progress in two months, 
when 75% have CRs and PRs, I would imagine the stable disease is probably even more. So that might be actually a nice way to, to, to split this difference. If you're stable disease people, you have a reason, you're justified in giving them therapy, you know that uh, things aren't going to stay, uh, things don't look terrific. I'll think about that more, but is it possible that that we're being misled? Hmm. I'll think about that. That's interesting. Okay. So, um, and for the other patients, I mean, you follow your patients very closely, particularly these patients mm-hmm. who aren't, yeah. So right. I guess I'm not too right. worried that people are going to slip through the cracks without some checkpoint inhibitor. Um, right. And you like the Pembro because then when your control arm patients progress, you can give them Pembro on an, uh, on extended schedule. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 So I definitely think that's a good alternative. Um, and I think, you know, that's the difficulty with these approvals is that it's difficult for a clinician to make the decision to not go forward with this maintenance therapy now that it's approved. Yes. And you're seeing, you know, the results portrayed as they are. And, but I definitely think it would be reasonable to do best supportive care as is the standard in North America um, and then give Pembro, like you said. Yeah, I think, I mean, ASCO, Plenary, New England Journal Paper, Celebration, Celebration, Game Changer, Game Changer, all that kind of stuff. It's difficult to resist. I guess um, you've done a nice job, I think, of talking about the the benefits and the limitations of the data and how you would apply it. But the deep solution would be if we had the data that was more relevant to the clinical question we face, which is that in many of these places... You know, they can't afford Pembro second line. So how on earth are they going to afford maintenance of Alumab? Vice versa, in places that can afford Pembro second line, does maintenance of Alumab have a survival benefit? Neither place has the question that they need answered. The, the global sites, they don't answer it for them because either way they can't afford it. And we're not getting the answer we need because I don't know for sure that they have a survival benefit there. But Pfizer... They have not had luck with Avalumab. They've got the, that lucrative Merkel cell approval that they've been laughing about all the way to the bank. Um, now they finally got an approval that they can they can they can detail for. I don't know how much they were doing with that Merkel cell. So uh, you know, um, I I guess uh, I guess they they have a bo- they, somebody threw them a bone here with this with this approval. Um, so okay. Interesting. Um, any last thoughts, Dr. Twaji? I think this was a nice summary of the paper. And I guess I looked at it and I, I, I never, I hadn't thought of anything additional because yeah, you, you've, you've taken everything that I thought. I think that summarizes most of it. I think, you know, it would be good to have some sort of task force to, you know, rather than the drug companies each trying to get these approvals for all these different drugs to have more of a a unified approach to designing these trials to actually do better for our patients. Absolutely. That's what I think. Dr. Tawaji, thanks so much for doing Journal Club with a Fellow. Number two, you'll have to be back for number three. Yeah, I would love to. Thanks again for having me. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.